we come to chapter 11, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 2 down to verse 16. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, we do, we do pray as your word is proclaimed today that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, have you ever wondered why it is that I am wearing a robe? Why not an Armani suit? Why not an Aloha shirt? Why not a leather jacket? Why not a pair of sweatpants? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that when we wear something, we say something. We often say it's somebody, when they're dressed to the nines, we say that person is making a statement. And the short answer, the reason why I wear this robe when I preach is because I don't want this to be about my personal sense of style or lack thereof, but rather I want it to be about the word. So you can concentrate on what's being said and not what I'm wearing. But when we consider our passage today, what we see is that the Corinthians, whether they were intending it or not, they were making a statement by what they were wearing or by what they weren't wearing. As we see the Apostle Paul address this particular issue of head coverings and how it is appropriate for a woman to wear a head covering, but it is inappropriate for a man to wear a head covering, what we see is that they were communicating something that was contrary to the clear teaching of God's word. Well, as we consider this passage today, which uh, which admittedly is a very difficult passage, 
And, and commentators are very divided about what particularly is going on here. As we consider this passage today, it's important to keep in mind that the Apostle Paul is beginning a new topic. For the last three chapters, he's been addressing the issue of idolatry, and in particular, whether it's appropriate for Christians to eat meat that had been offered to idols. Well, here in chapter 11, starting in verse 2, he's now addressing the broader topic of worship and how it is that the church ought to conduct itself when it gathers together in sacred assembly. And the first narrow topic that he addresses is what they ought to wear when they are in worship. But he begins by commending his audience. He says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and you keep the traditions that I've given to you. Paul praises the Corinthians for maintaining the traditions, that is the piety and the practice of Christian worship, which he himself had delivered to them during his time in Corinth. Although clearly, as we will see, they need further instruction. And so that's why the Apostle Paul in verse 3 starts off by by, uh, addressing a a basic theological premise. Before getting into the narrow topic of head coverings, he, he issues this basic premise that God has established an authority structure in creation. There is a certain hierarchy of authority that God has placed in the created order. And he starts off by saying that the head of every man is Christ. Now, when he speaks of Christ as being the head of every man, he's using that word in the sense of authority, that, that Christ is the Lord and ruler over every man, and in particular, over every Christian man. Christ is their Lord. Likewise, the husband is, is in a position of authority over his wife. And I think that's what Paul means when he says that the head of every wife is her husband. Now, some of your Bible translations may say that the head of every woman is man, and that's literally what it says in the Greek. The Greek word... Uh, translated woman, depending on the context, can also be translated wife. And I think wife is the preferred translation here because of what we read in Ephesians chapter 5 today when the Apostle Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And then it goes on to say, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. The Apostle Paul is not saying that every man has authority over every woman. He's not saying women submit unto men anywhere you find them. But no, he's saying wives submit to your own husbands. The Greek word their own is the word idios, from which we get the English word idiot. So I always like to remind wives that you should submit to your idiot husbands. (laughs) Now, the idea there is you need to submit to your own husband. Why? Because you willingly submitted unto this person when you married them. And I think that's the idea here when the Apostle Paul is establishing this hierarchy, this structure of authority, is that Christ is over the husband and the husband is over the wife. And then he comes back around and he says that the head of Christ is God. And so if if we want to piece all this together, we can see that as wives submit to their husbands, husbands should submit to Christ, even as Christ submits to God. And I think that's informative for us to understand that this, this hierarchy, this authority structure, is not based upon inherent superiority or inherent inferiority. 
Paul isn't saying that men are better than women, and so women should submit unto men. No. Notice what he says here with regard to Christ. Christ submits to God, but we know that Christ is equal to God. He's God of God, light of light. He is equal with him in power and glory and honor because he is fully God. And yet here we see Christ willingly submit unto God the Father in, his, in the economy of redemption. And so it's what we might call an economic authority or an economic submission, not an ontological one, not one based upon inherent inferiority but in superiority, but a willing submission according to God's plan that he established in creation. And so that's the basic starting point that the Apostle Paul has, that God has established this structure of authority, beginning with him, going to Christ, then to men, and then to their wives. And now he needs to address the particular topic of head coverings. And you'll notice that we often, when we think of 1 Corinthians 11, we often think of women needing to wear head coverings. But did you notice he doesn't start with the women? He starts by addressing men. So both sexes are getting admonished here. And so he starts off by saying that any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered brings uh, uh, dishonors his head. And when the Apostle Paul is talking about praying or prophesying, he's he's referring to doing that out loud in church. Praying, quite simply, is speaking to God. Prophesying is speaking for God. And both of these, these, uh, these words, praying and prophesying, should be understood as spirit-led utterances, which the speaker would, would proclaim in church to the congregation for their edification. And so these gifts of praying and prophesying, we ought to see as revelatory, spirit-led gifts, which occurred in the early church. The Holy Spirit, having given the fullness of God's revelation in the Bible, no longer speaks to us that way. We ought not to expect somebody to stand up and and prophesy or have a spirit-led prayer in church today because God has already delivered the fullness of revelation. But in the early church, during the time of the apostles, as we will see in the coming chapters, there was, in fact, room given for spirit-led prayer or prophecy. And the fact that both men and women would be doing this in the early church should not surprise us. The prophet Joel spoke of the time that was coming when he says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And Peter said that that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. We see an example of it in the book of Acts. In Acts 21 verse 9, where Philip's daughters all prophesy. And so both men and women uh, would be given these utterances, would be given these gifts, these revelatory gifts of the Holy Spirit, which they would use in the church for the other's edification. Now elsewhere, Paul clearly forbids that women are to teach or to exercise authority over men in the church. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, or even later on in chapter 14, where he commands that women ought to be silent. There he's forbidding that women ought to use the, uh, to teach or exercise authority, but certainly he's not limiting their exercise of spiritual gifts. Only they need to do it in an appropriate manner. And so clearly we see that both men and women are free to participate in worship, 
in the spirit-led worship of the early church, but they need to do so in an appropriate manner, and that brings us to the issue of head coverings. Now, clearly, the fact that they were wear- that, that the men were wearing head coverings and the women were not wearing head coverings had a cultural significance. As, as I said at the, at the beginning of the sermon, when you wear something, you say something. The question is, what are they saying when they either choose to wear or not wear the head coverings? Well, clearly, the Apostle Paul knew what the cultural significance was. And clearly, the Corinthians knew what the cultural significance was. The problem is, is he doesn't tell us exactly what the cultural significance is. And so we are left to speculate. And so I've done a, a, a lot of reading this past week about various head styles and head coverings that, that would happen in, that people would wear in and around the first century. And so let me suggest to you a couple things. And we don't want to be dogmatic on these, but maybe this might enlighten this passage a bit. We have evidence that Roman men would cover their heads when they would engage in pagan worship, whether they were offering a sacrifice or offering a prayer, they would pull their toga up over their head. There was actually a larger-than-life statue of Emperor Augustus. It was, it was some six feet tall in the city of Corinth that presented him with his toga pulled up over his head. And although his arms have fallen off, as most ancient statues do, presumably he was offering incense and prayer in leading in worship. There's coins that depict Emperor Augustus or even Emperor Nero uh, with, with, a, with a t- their toga pulled over their head to portray them as pious and religious leaders. And sort of, it was sort of part of the propaganda of the empire where they wanted to promote these, these uh, Roman values and promote the worship of the Roman gods. And so perhaps that's some of the cultural uh, influences going on here. Perhaps that's why some of the men in Corinth were motivated when they would pray or prophesy to pull their toga over their head so that they could be like Emperor Augustus. And perhaps that's why Paul is saying don't do that because he wants them to avoid the similarities of pagan worship. Or perhaps he wants them to not draw attention to themselves or make it as a status-seeking symbol where somebody is sort of flaunting their status by, being, by saying, I'm like Emperor Augustus. So that's why perhaps the Apostle Paul says in verse 4, when you do that, you dishonor your head. Now the question is, when he says you dishonor your head, is he talking about, is he talking about their head or is he talking about Christ, who he said is the head of every man in verse 3? I think we can safely assume it's both. Not only when, when, by drawing attention to themselves, by the men pulling the togas over their heads, not only would they bring dishonor upon themselves, but they also bring dishonor upon Christ to whom all honor and glory is due in worship. Well, if that was the case for men, then what about the women? We have pretty good evidence to suggest in the first century that veils for women in the, uh, in the ancient world, in the Roman context, were used to indicate their marital status, kind of like we do today by wearing a a wedding ring. And so to unveil yourself in public would be to show that you were an available woman. And so respectable married women would veil themselves in public to show that they, in fact, were married and that they submitted unto their husband. 
And yet there was a movement in, in the Roman world where certain women sought to shed these cultural restraints by removing their veils. Kind of an early women's liberation movement where they're getting rid of the veils, getting rid of these cultural limitations. And yet in respectable culture, this type of, of movement would be scandalous. It would suggest that these women were of loose moral values and that they were showing that they were available. And yet we could see how this type of liberation could, could perhaps seek justification in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. As the Apostle Paul, for example, said in Galatians chapter 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if in fact, as we have pretty safe to assume, if the Apostle Paul taught that same exact thing in the church of Corinth, you could see how that could easily be misunderstood. If there's no more male and female in Christ Jesus, then why are we uh, you know, giving in to these cultural stereotypes? Why are we uh, submitting to these gender norms or these these, these distinctions that our society imposes upon us, we are all free, we are equal, this flattening out egalitarian view. And yet, as we've already seen back in chapter 7, while our primary identity in Christ is as new creatures, that identity eclipses all of our other identities, whether it is our uh, biological sex or our ethnicity or our, our social status, our primary identity is in Christ, and yet that while that identity eclipses our other identities, it doesn't do away with them. We continue to submit to the authority structures that God has established, and yet we do so in Christ. That's why I read from Ephesians 5 and 6 today to show how each and every one of us, in whatever position we are in in life, whether we are married or single, whether we're a husband or a wife, whether we are an adult or a child or a slave or a master, we all need to submit to Christ and we submit to those authorities over us as if we do it as unto the Lord. And so while our identity in Christ eclipses those other identities, it doesn't do away with them. It relativizes them. It redefines them gives you a whole new purpose to submit to your husband or to get up in the morning and go to school because you do it for Christ. But it doesn't do away with those other identities. And so perhaps that's what Paul is dealing with here, with these Corinthian women who would prophesy or pray with their heads uncovered. And yet Paul tells us in verse 5 that when they do that, they dishonor their head because it would have such scandalous connotations in the broader culture because it blurred the clear distinctions, the clear lines between gender, for for a married woman to to uncover her head would bring shame, not only on herself, but also her husband, who Paul tells us in verse 3 is her head. Again, I think there's a double play in words. Brings shame upon herself as well as her husband. He says, if a woman is going to do this, it's it's tantamount to as if their head were shaven. Now, perhaps another a bit more cultural context would be helpful. It was common in the ancient world for a woman who was caught in adultery 
as part of the public shame that would come upon her, they would shave her head, kind of like a scarlet letter. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says, the scandalous behavior is bringing shame upon yourself. And since no Christian woman in Corinth would, would want to, since they would want, want to avoid those connotations, Paul urges that they wear a head covering in verse 6. Now, while the specific cultural significance perhaps may be lost to us, the main point is clear. Men were not acting like men, and women were not acting like women. By blurring the gender lines, the Corinthians were failing to live according to God's plan for creation. Gender roles may change. It's common for us in our day and age for baby boys to wear blue and baby girls to wear pink. But someday that may change. Hairstyles vary uh, throughout time. It was common in Roman world for men to have short hair. And it was common for women to have long hair, which was often braided up. Uh, and, and that's why Paul, at the end of the passage, says, does not nature even teach us this? See, those, those, those specific gender roles may change and alter, but what's important to see is those gender roles are rooted in the fact that God created us in the beginning, male and female, for his glory. And since all that we are to do is unto the glory of God, as Paul says in, in chapter 10, verse 31, even the way we dress, even the way we conduct ourselves as either male or female, should reflect God's original design and creation. And so that's why the Apostle Paul in verses 7 through 9 elaborates upon God's original design and creation. And he goes and he reflects upon the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. He says in verse 7 that man ought not to cover his head. Why? Well, because he is the image and glory of God. Genesis chapter 1 teaches us that Adam was created in God's image and therefore was to exercise rule and authority that God gave to him and thereby reflect God's glory upon the rest of creation. It's clearly taught there in Genesis 1.26 or in Psalm chapter 8 as, it, as, as David says, what is man that you've, that you've uh, created him thus? You've crowned him with glory and honor. Well, those of you astute Bible readers would want to say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't woman also created in the image and glory of God? To which I would say, yes. Woman was, in fact, created in the image of God, as we see in Genesis 1.27, where we read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So clearly in Genesis chapter 1, we see both male and female being created equally in the image of God. And, and together they compromise what we might call mankind. So both male and female are in the image of God. And so it's important to understand that Paul's not denying that women bear the image of God. And you'll notice in, in verse 7 when he says that woman is the glory of man, he doesn't say that woman is the image of man because she is in the image of God. But reflecting upon what we see in Genesis chapter 2, where we get kind of the close-up view of, of the creation of man or woman, we see that women, women, woman's glory is derivative from man since she was made from man. That's Paul's point there in verse 8. 
that man wasn't made from woman, but woman was made from man. Boys and girls, you know the story. God put Adam in a deep sleep. He took out one of his ribs, and from that rib, he created woman. But a closer look at Genesis 2 shows that Adam was, in fact, incomplete. And he was unable to perform his function as image bearer without Eve. It was the first time we read in the creation narrative that something is not good. Time and time again, God looks at his creation. He says, it's very good. And then he looks at Adam and he says, wait a minute, something wrong here. Calvin says it's as if Adam was half a man. He needed Eve. He needed his glory. And she completed him. And therefore, he gloried in her. And he's saying, when he's saying, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And yet, uh, from that very fact that woman was created from man shows God's order. The order of creation shows God's design for the authority in marriage. It's rooted in creation. That's why Paul says, wives, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Why? Well, because God made it that way in the beginning, and it's not up to us to change it. And that's why it's fitting for woman to have, in verse 10, literally authority over her head. This is a, a difficult verse to understand. Uh, the, the word there in the ESV, symbol of authority, is supplied. Uh, and perhaps that is the best way to understand this verse, where Paul's referring to the head covering as a symbol of authority for a wife to stand up with her, with her head covered showed that she was submitting to her husband even as she exercised uh, these gifts of the Spirit. But perhaps what's equally as puzzling to us is the reason why Paul says these women ought to wear this symbol of authority on their head in verse 10 when he says, because of the angels. Did you catch that when I read it? Did your ears perk up and think, wait, what is he talking about? Because of the angels? Now, some commentators have suggested that Paul's not referring to what we typically think of as angels, but what he's referring to are human messengers. The word translated angel simply means messenger. And the reason why angels are called angels is because they're messengers of God. And and so some have suggested, well, perhaps Paul's referring to human messengers or, or visitors that have come into the church to kind of scope things out and see what's going on. If that's the case, I might question, well, who are they messengers of or for whom? And if, in fact, the Apostle Paul wanted to describe an outsider or an unbeliever in the midst of the congregation, he would use those exact terms as he does in chapter 14 when he describes outsiders and unbelievers who are sitting in their midst. No, I think we have pretty safe, uh, we're pretty safe to assume that the Apostle Paul here is referring to heavenly angels And when he refers to the angels in our midst, he's referring to the heavenly host that surrounds us when we assemble together in corporate worship. The call to worship today in Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about the fact that we've come to that heavenly Mount Zion. It says we have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. It is interesting how the Apostle Paul has spoken of angels already in this book. Uh, The first time he actually refers to angels is back in chapter 4, where he describes himself as an apostle on on uh, being presented before the entire world. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, For I think that God has, has exhibited us as apostles as last of all. We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. 
So Paul there referring to his, his uh, life as an apostle, as, as one that is characterized by suffering and, and in giving up himself for others as being a spectacle to the whole created wor- order, angels included. It's also interesting to consider what Jude tells us about the fallen angels. He says in Jude 1.6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. There, Jude, referring to the fallen angels who fell in the satanic rebellion. They rejected God's authority structure. They sided with the devil rather than God. And in rejecting God's authority structure, they are uh, uh, held in eternal chains, awaiting the final day. But do you know who's going to judge those angels? The Apostle Paul has told us already in chapter 6, when he says, Do you not know? that we are to judge angels? Now there in that context, he was saying, if we're going to judge angels, how much more can we settle these petty disputes that arise within the church? Well, here I think the similarity is the same. When he says women ought to wear a symbol of authority on their head because of the angels, what he's suggesting here is that we need to respect the authority structure that God has established in creation. And if we are going to be the ones pronouncing judgment upon the fallen angels who rejected God's authority structure, how much more ought we in this life respect the authority structure that God has put in this so as not to uh, 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 offend the angels, at least the holy angels, who respect that authority structure? I think that's probably what the Apostle Paul has in mind here. Yeah, I think there needs to be some qualification lest we take what Paul is saying and run with it. In verse 11, he qualifies what he says concerning men and women. He says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. When we think about the battle of the sexes and and the rise of the women's liberation movement in, in our modern day, I think the human tendency is to say that one sex is, in, is inherently superior to the other. And since they are inherently superior to the other, we really don't need the other one. How many times have you heard it said women? You can't live with them, you can't live without them. Or perhaps women saying, men, ugh, who needs them? That's not what scripture teaches. And that's not what the apostle Paul is saying here. We are not independent of one another. We're not apart from one another. No no sex is inherently superior to the other, but what you see is a mutual reliance upon one another uh, uh, for the other's benefit. We see that in marriage, and we see that throughout human society. Unless Unless us as men think too highly of ourselves, well, you know, women came from man. The Apostle Paul highlights the fact that from here on out, from, from Eve onward, every other man has come from their mothers. And so the, really, there's only one instance in the history of mankind where a woman has come from a man. All the rest of us have come from our moms. Just shows that dependence, the, the, how, how God has created both male and female for the other's benefit. And so there shouldn't be a competition, but we should see the other 
uh, uh, the uh, mutual reliance for each other's benefit. And ultimately, God should get all the praise and honor because all things are from God, as Paul tells us. All things are from God. As we saw back in chapter 8, Paul says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In chapter 15, Paul will describe how in the end, Christ the Son will deliver the kingdom of redeemed men and women to the Father so that God may be all in all. Here we see a a fulfillment, a culmination, a completion of God's original design, creating male and female so that they would mutually benefit, benefit one another, bring glory to God through Christ Jesus. That's the design that God has. That's the goal that he will accomplish in the meantime. We ought to respect those positions of authority that God has established. Well, in conclusion, we see the Apostle Paul anticipating that there's going to be objections. You get the feeling that Paul's dealt with this before. He's anticipating there's going to be objections, that there's going to be those who argue that gender norms are merely human conventions and not part of the new creation. And rather than rehearsing his arguments, he appeals to the universal practice of the churches. He says, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, no one does this. There's no church that does what you guys are doing in Corinth. And so at least respect that fact, appealing to the tradition of the churches. Well, in a passage that many of us would just as soon scan over, scratch our heads, and wonder what on earth is going on, I think, I I hope at this point it's helpful to see how relevant a passage like this is for us today. In a day and age where we are told that not only can we and should we flaunt gender norms, but we're told that we can create our own gender I think at last count, there were seven different genders that people are now identifying themselves as, whether it be uh, uh, non-binary or whatever. People are creating their own genders, let alone gender roles. We are reminded in God's word that he made us mankind, male and female, in his own image and for his glory. And even as he recreates us in the image of his son, we do not lose our identity as either male or male. Or female. All such distinctions are redefined and reorientated towards love and service to God and neighbor. So regardless of whether you are a male or a female, young or old, married or single, black or white, and any other identity you could possibly think of, you are primarily a new creature in Christ. And God has called you to glorify him in your own unique way. Think about the combination of identities that you have is unique to yourself. And God has filled you with his spirit and enabled you to use that unique combination of identities, those things that make you who you are, so that you could live a life that glorifies God by bringing forth fruits of the new creation. And in so doing, we not only glorify him, but we enjoy him forever. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that in the fullness of time that you were born of woman and born under the law 
in order to redeem those of us who were uh, uh, subject to the curse of the law because of our own sin and our misery. Thank you also for the gift of the Spirit who makes us new creatures and enables us to bring forth the fruits of the new creation. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to glorify you in our own station in life. Help us to willingly and freely submit unto those authority structures that you have placed over us as we do so as unto you. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.